and do invite you to follow along. Um, we tend to be more of a visual culture these days, but um, or an auditory. We listen a lot, but we don't always look and follow along. And uh, it is a, a value, though, to us to, to see what the Word says, and that I'm not merely, you know, I'm not saying things that are not relevant to what the Scripture is saying here, and I'm trying to be faithful to it, so I encourage you to do that. And for another reason, too, is that uh, the Word of God is powerful. There is an inherent authority in the Word that transcends my communication of it, and it's so important for us to recognize that Jesus' words have power, real power. If only we could say a word like Jesus and redo a conversation that we've had, or say a word and turn back time, say a word and heal a relationship, wouldn't that be a wonderful power, capacity to do that? Jesus' word has power. I mean, I often think, wouldn't it be nice just to say, forgive me, as a parent, once, and our children do exactly what we have asked them to do without repeating it three times? That happens, yes, in a pastor's home on occasion. It would be great. It would be grand. Now, our words don't have the kind of power, though, that Jesus' words have. God's word, not our word, carries power to effect real change in the circumstances that he was living in, but also to effect change in the hearts and lives of people. People who were suffering, people who were dealing with fleeting thoughts coming in to their minds from the demonic world and just to, to relieve and to, to spare them. I think it's important for us to realize that if we take the authority of God's word, particularly Jesus' word, as they're communicated to us, if we believe them, we trust them with obedience that says, yes, we believe them, we shouldn't be surprised to realize that in time there's going to be changes because Jesus' words have incredible power to effect change in the world that we live. So this morning I'm going to be speaking and teaching through several miracles, additional miracles. And so let's just take a moment to read these words as they're presented through the Apostle Matthew. And uh, chapter 8, verse, verse 18. In the context, there were three previous miracles that we encountered. A leper, a Gentile, and a lady were healed. In verse 18, we see now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. 
And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us for the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the her whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city, and they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Lord, as we look at this text, may you move within our hearts to still the chaos that would be in our own souls. May your Holy Spirit speak deeply within our hearts. Cause us to have confidence in you and a peace that passes all human understanding. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that gives us the capacity to, to be obedient to your word. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would turn disorder into order. In your name we pray. Amen. In the very beginning, the very beginning, before there was a tree, a sea, a bird in the air, there was chaos. There was a world that was here but without form. It was as the scripture said, says, it was without form and it was void. That phrase, without form and being void, is a, a Hebrew idiom that means chaos. There was no order to the elements that were in existence in the beginning. And the Spirit of God hovered over, the, over it. And... It didn't stay that way because God spoke order into the world. His word said, let there be light, and then there was light. And gradually, day after day, there was a reordering out of that which was disordered. But it came out of the word and the power of God. One day at a time, God's word creates order out of disorder. And when we turn to these miracles, we see chaos, we see some disorder occurring, and we're going to see with a word, our Savior creating order. The next three miracles, I said next three, but we only read of two. I stopped short just because of the nature of time. We don't have time to fully develop all three at one time this morning. Chapter 9 introduces us to a third miracle in a set in which, uh, with just a word, Jesus heals and forgives 
sins. And so we see a progression of the word organizing and restoring a fallen creation. The word overturning demonic oppression. And in the third instance, which we'll cover next Sunday, there was the sin that was forgiven. All elements that cause disorder in our world. And so this, this uh, involves also a very short uh, object lesson in the midst of it. There is a, a conversation about uh, wanting to follow Jesus and, and be responsive to his word. And these, there's people wanting to get on the boat with Jesus. And Jesus kind of calls the crowd here. And he, he kind of assesses whether or not there's going to be a responsiveness to his word or not. It's remarkable that these, these illustrations occur. We have these two men here standing, as it were, on the outside of the boat. But reality is, this is showing us just the importance of what we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we cannot be one in lip service only. We have to respond to his word. How did Jesus finish the Sermon on the Mount? He said in Matthew 7, verse 26 through 28, he said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his house upon the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Notice the order versus disorder. It's directly related to response to these words of mine. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount offering wholeness and blessing to those who respond to his teaching. We would all want these things. No one wants to live a chaotic and disordered life. None of us really set out, oh, I want to be in prison. That's my life goal and ambition, to destroy my family. That's what I really want in life. No. We all want these things. But we have to build upon the rock. We have to put the words of Jesus into practice because we believe them to be true. They have the capacity to create order within our disordered hearts. So let's look into uh, this text this morning. I want us to see this principle come to light through our time together is that life transformation by the Holy Spirit occurs as faith unites with obedience to Jesus. Obedience. The winds and the waves obeyed Jesus' words, and they became whole, they became peaceful. The implication is if we would respond to Jesus' words, we also will become whole ourselves. So I want us to look at these little snippets, these little vignettes, these little scenes in these verses. We're going to start with the first in which we see an interview with two aspiring, two aspiring disciples, verses 18 to 22. Verse 18 to 22. And there was a crowd gathering around Jesus. There has been crowds already in Jesus' ministry. He taught the crowds on the, the mountain. 
He came down from the mountain, and great crowds followed him. The leper, as it were, parted the crowd to get to Jesus. There was crowds all around him, but now something unique is happening. Jesus is separating himself from the crowds and limiting his interactions with the few. Notice in verse uh, verse 18, says, Jesus says, and now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. What are they going to get into? They're going to get into a boat, and a boat cannot contain a crowd. It's limited to a few. And the discussion here with, with, um, with his disciples, those who are listening and trying to organize this for him, they recognize his authority. He, he gave orders to go to the other side. He has claim to lead, and he's only going to take those disciples who would fit in the boat with him. Very remarkable. And Jesus is making plans here, and these two aspiring disciples, as it were, come up to him like, you know, and they're trying to get in on the boat. And Jesus makes their inclusion, though, a little bit more difficult. He asks them whether or not they are truly willing to be a follower and to obey and to follow exactly everything that he has commanded. He makes it harder, as it will. He raises the bar. It's like, hey, is your passport up to date, so to speak? You want to get on my boat? This is what it's going to take. And so Jesus calls the crowd and only takes a select few. Let's look at how he does this. And in the first place, he winnows the crowd by saying, look, you want to follow me, but following my teaching is really unromantic. You're not going to see this on the Hallmark Channel. You may not even see this in The Chosen. And the first candidate asks, enter the boat. Teacher, he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. (laughs) Now, in one respect, this scribe, as he's described, a scribe is a legal clerical person who was like really, like kind of a lawyer who knew all all the 900 laws of the Old Testament. He knew exactly how they applied. Well, he... He's coming to Jesus, and the first clue is that he's not really ready to respond to Jesus because he doesn't describe him as master. He describes him as teacher. He's this rabbi. Now, typically, scribes would choose to follow a teacher. They would would say, I want to be aligned with this teacher because he... He represents this school of thought, and I, I want to advance, and I want to move up the ranks, and so I try to angle myself to get into, you know, the one that is going to take me places. <laughs> and he, 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 this is really remarkable because Jesus is a different kind of teacher. He is the one who chooses whom he will call. He was the one who by the Sea of Galilee said to Simon, Peter, and to James, and to John, you follow me, you come after me. A remarkable difference. And he, 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 this man doesn't come with the attitude 
of the leper, it's, it's more of like, at long last, Jesus, you, you found me. I'm going to be your disciple. Like, you need a smart guy, a part of your crowd. I'm going to be a part of your crew. He doesn't come like the leper who says, Lord, if you will, you can make me your disciple. He comes with a different attitude. He claims a right to be a disciple rather than the humility to say, may I, is it possible that I could be on your boat? He also rebukes the man, and, and Jesus says to him uh, in verse, uh, verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is this reference to Son of Man? As a scribe of the Old Testament, this, this man would have immediately picked up on what Jesus was saying. Son of Man was a designated term to describe whom Daniel saw in a vision, the Son of Man coming through the clouds and sitting on the throne of God. The throne, like he refers to himself as this one with authority to rule and reign, but then he, he twists this image and says, he's not sitting on a throne. He doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And so he's telling this wannabe disciple, look, if you want to follow me, you need to not only see me as a great teacher, you need to view me as Lord and be willing to do whatever I will be doing, even if it's unromantic and it's uncomfortable. All who follow Jesus ought to expect that they will be exposed. They will be persecuted by the world. The world will not esteem them. They will not desire your company. Foxes have Holes, birds there have nests. But there's another side to this. It's the element of faith. This is true that you will be rejected of men, but will you not also see a heavenly Father who will care for all your needs? It's a two-edged sword. Following Jesus is on the one hand unglamorous, but yet on the other it also holds the peace for everything that we so desire. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives that peace. And to follow Jesus means that we are committing to His teaching, come what may. We don't know what we'll experience. And so often is the case that when someone makes a profession of faith, immediately their road gets harder. They they. they make a decision. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to come and be a part of a body. And then it gets harder because every week there's another challenge. There's some reason why I might not actually be out with the body. There's people fighting for my time, and I have to make decisions, a priority. Where will I be? And Jesus is looking for a long-term commitment from those who follow him, and that's indication of a life transformation by the Holy Spirit. 
So there's this first disciple, and the second is also a little bit off. The second here, Jesus instructs him that it's not just only unromantic, but it's actually, if you are going to follow my teaching, you will find on the positive side, you're going to find life and health. This is what it means to follow my teaching. Now, the difference between the first candidate and the second is quite remarkable. Um, in verse um, 21, let's read it. It says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, notice a different word. He doesn't say teacher. He says master, Lord. But then something happens. <laughs> Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, the second candidate asks Jesus for permission to follow, and he's aspiring. He, he, he asks, he, he's thinking about leaving the crowd. He, 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 he's not sure. He's a little bit uncertain of what he should do. The other was eager. This one's maybe undecided as to whether or not this was for him, but then he throws out this this potential objection to following. And he says, basically, in, in, the, in the way of thinking of an Easterner, a, a Middle Eastern person at that time period, to bury the father meant fulfilling his responsibility as a son to care for the estate in, my, in his father's older years without in, with an indefiniteness to when he might pass. This is the idea of, like, I have to attend to my father until he passes. Now, if, if it was imminent that his father was going to die, he wouldn't be here. Like, let's just put that on the table. He wouldn't be here at the shore listening to Jesus. He'd be by his father's bedside. So that's not what... what so Jesus is not being callous to someone who may be on their deathbed no, Jesus is saying, you need to make following me your highest priority, even above the distractions that may come from family. That's significant. In fact, he was, this man was putting off what would be rigorous discipleship indefinitely. He, he, he said, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really serious about engaging in all of this and following you like maybe you would want me to be. He recognized him to be master, but at the same time, his words also indicate that maybe he's just using those words. He, in his heart, doesn't believe fully that Jesus is his master so that he would pick up and drop his nets and follow him, so to speak. Now, Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. This is really important. Because when Jesus looks at the world, do you know what he looks at? He sees either people living or people who are living but really dying. He sees right through to the heart. He knows this world system is in a state of decay. It is falling away. It is dying. One generation comes and then another generation comes. We think that we will live forever, but we will not live forever. Jesus is looking at it from another perspective, and so when Jesus looks at the world, he recognized that to follow him, in his words, 
is the opposite of death. It brings life and it brings health. It brings healing to the soul. It brings the expectation of eternal life when we, when we physically die and the hope of our resurrection. And following Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is really life and it's health. We want the good life. We want things to be like always aligning. <laughs> but things can align within our souls no matter what's going on out here because we're responding to the word of Jesus. We often get up, you know, really hung up on those questions, those, you know, those big questions of life. Like the really, we, 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 we wrestle with, you know, who should we marry? You know, I want to marry, I want to be in God's perfect will. It's like I want to know exactly who I'm supposed to marry, like what kind of, like the job I'm supposed to take, where am I supposed to live? All these things, though, will be added unto you if you take the words of Jesus and start to respond to the mundane moment-by-moment decisions to forgive, to not be angry at those who rebuke you, to pray for those who are against you, Jesus will give you what you need. He'll help you to know what to do. And if you take seriously what we might call, well, that's just mundane, you'll find that you will experience within your soul and within your heart the true peace and stability so that you're able to make good decisions with your life. Life transformation by the Holy Spirit occurs as faith unites with obedience to Jesus. So, do you want to get in the boat with Jesus? Jesus gets into the boat. And what does verse 23 say? Verse 23 says, And he, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So if you want to get into the boat you've got to be willing to be a disciple. You've got to be willing to say, I hear what you're saying, Lord, and I'm not making excuses. I'm putting into practice what you've commanded me in all of your teaching. I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to get into the boat. But this will be a boat ride to remember. <laughs> I working through this text this week, and I was remembering uh, several summers ago, uh, some of us at the church went to help the Garens, and we got in this, this van, this big 15-passenger van, and we drove to Maine, and we timed it so that we could catch the ferry, and it was a five-hour ferry ride across to Nova Scotia, and uh, we... <laughs> It was, it was not a very easy, it was not a very easy for some of us. I, I personally don't get seasick. Like, I, I don't know if I've been blessed with that. Uh, but there were some in our group that really got sick, and they were like laying on the floor, and uh, it, was not, it was not pleasant for them. These are live pictures of the event, by the way. And uh, I will say, though, 
that I do get sick now on amusement park rides. A few years ago, I got on one of these mixers where like you, you start spinning and then it starts tilting and you're going like this around a circle. And when I got off that ride, I kissed the ground. I was like, I never want to get on a boat, on a, on a, on a ride like that ever again. I have never gone on a ride since. I let the kids go. <laughs> uh, but I, I recognize too that, you know, it's not just the lepers that Jesus saves. It's not just the Gentiles. It's not just the women who are on the fringe or the ostracized from society. But even those who put their faith and say, I will be a disciple, we also need to be saved from ourselves. We also need to be saved every day as we go through responding to the Word. There's going to be all kinds of circumstances in our lives that we're going to need saved from. And we have to have continual faith in Him and recognize that His Word alone affects the change that we cannot create ourselves. Obedience to His Word creates change. It sanctifies It changes us from the inside out. And so in verse 23 to 27, we see the miracle, the chaos of the storm, a fallen world. There's going to be catastrophic events that occur. It's not the Garden of Eden, folks. We live in a world that is filled with effects of our sin-laden decisions at the very beginning. And the disciples here are rebuked for their little faith. Well, they have some faith, yes, but their faith is not yet strong. It's not mature yet. And so in verse 23, maybe we'll read these verses again. It says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What, what manner of man is this? Jesus shows and demonstrates that he is the master the Lord, He is always in control. He is always in control. Jesus is in control of this, and He's sleeping. He's sleeping. He's, he's dead asleep. Some people might say He's dead to the world, but He's never been more alive and in control of what's going on around. <laughs> you know, we, we, we read in the Old Testament about how that our Lord neither sleeps nor slumbers, and his eye is always watching his people. But here on earth, Jesus as true man was asleep. But yet there is a mystery in this, that even in this, he was still in control. And the disciples express an expectation. There is a little bit of faith. They, they, they look to Jesus and they, they wake him and they say, save us, Master, save us, Lord. We're perishing. They say the right things, but their hearts are agitated. It's, it's they're, 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 they're saying, they're not quite 
they're saying they kind of believe it. They're not quite all the way up to that level right yet. Reminds me a lot of the experience of Moses when he was standing on the edge of the Red Sea. Standing at the Red Sea, he in the distance and all the people of Israel saw the chariots coming, the smoke and the clouds of everything coming towards him. And they're in this box little canyon and the, their backs are against the sea. And Moses says to the people, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you will have only to be silent. It's, a, it's remarkable because he's saying the right things. You know what God says back to him? The Lord says this to Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Well, wait a second. Moses said the right thing. But God knows our hearts. He knows that we are not stable. We still have chaos in our souls, even as we say the right things. We all are still of little faith. We all still have room to grow as followers of Christ. Come on, Moses. Just lead the people into the sea. Isn't it obvious? It's obvious to the Lord what He's going to do. It's not always obvious to us. So we have to take our eyes off of our circumstances and put them on the Lord. That's the essence of where order will come out of disorder. When He speaks the word, the chaos will be dispersed. There's a second miracle that occurs Oh, yes, there is, a, there is an important point that I can't overlook before we go to the second miracle, and that is this, that there is a, yes, there's going to be chaos in our world as followers of Christ, and this is the laboratory of our faith. That little phrase, I, I, cannot, I cannot pass quickly over this because it's a trigger word. You know, you know there's certain words, there are certain expressions, people say things in our discourse and and, and, and it reminds us of things that occurred maybe a couple years ago or even a couple of moments ago. And this is one of those moments where Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, and it triggers in his, it's intended to trigger in their memories what Jesus had just said in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown to the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith. And Jesus is teaching these poor, wretched, stressed-out disciples that, that He has it all mapped out. And I know that we, in our own worlds, we don't have everything mapped out. We might be able to plan maybe a month and think, okay, we've got contracts lined up a month out, or we've got you know, enough in our bank account to, to work out some of these things. But we can let ourselves get completely stressed out about what is not even happening yet. And the media wants us to be in a frenzy and to be filled with a lack of faith. 
They want us to be anxious, asking what shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? Are there wicked people who are trying to overthrow this great nation that we live in? Yes, there are. Are they wanting to recreate it into their own imagination? Yes, they are. Jesus is not asking us to be apathetic, but to live by faith and not by fear. Who is the one that provides what you need? And the world is, frankly, in a bit of chaos right now. We have children leading us in government, making decisions either intentionally or ineptitude. And the world is running around like a chicken with its head cut off. But Christians ought not to be running around with their heads cut off. We ought to be looking to our Savior and recognizing that the one who parted the Red Sea, who stilled the storm, is still sovereign yet. This is my Father's world, and we need to remember that. We need to remember the words of Jesus and do them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his house upon the sand or built his boat. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that boat, it sank and great was the sinking of it. These disciples were on a boat, but in the boat was their anchor. Jesus Christ. Life transformation will only occur through the Holy Spirit as we, by faith, obey Him. And so, it's important for us to recognize the need to follow and obey what He says. Let's look at the, sec the, the second miracle this morning, verse 28 through 34. 28 to 34 we see here the deliverance of two who are in a demonic chaos. Verse 28 to 34, let's read them again. It says, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? O Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away to the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the waters. The herdmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave their region. It's really remarkable. Two demon-possessed men, they come up out of the graveyard. Didn't we just hear Jesus talk about a graveyard? Let those who are dead bury the dead. These men who are 
who no one could, could get by are actually at a standstill. They're standing looking face to face with one who will not let them pass. They come up and they're brought up short. We ought to recognize in this moment a couple of realities. And the first is this. There is the reality of demonic possession. Our scientific age does not like to acknowledge the reality that there are, there are spiritual forces out there who will influence and also possess people. In the ancient world, the effects of some addictions and some obsessions and compulsions might have been labeled demonic. And we know that not all of those things were demonic, but I think it would be wrong to say that none of those things are demonic. Because clearly Jesus saw demonic possession, He identified it, and He said it's real. And these two men were clearly possessed, they lived in the realm of the dead. The demonic world seeks to use the, the corruptions of this fallen world to their advantage. And so, human psychological instabilities can be a platform for demonic influence. We ought to recognize that reality. And even though people may per perceptibly be all together, sin choices can also lead a person into the realm of the dead and influence of the demonic world. We also need to come up upon the reality of the Son of God. The demons know who Jesus is. They identify Him clearly. They call Him Son of God, which is remarkable because Jesus called Himself the Son of Man earlier. The phrase Son of Man references the divine human incarnation. The demons here are looking at the incarnation saying, oh, we know who you are. You're the divine Son of God who has right to sit at the throne. And they reference a future judgment in which the Son will execute judgment upon them. They had awareness of prophecy. They were reading the Scriptures, but they were confused. They were confused about the future order of events. Jesus was here before the time. What are you doing here, Jesus? They misread the prophecies. And remarkably, in this account, Jesus is recorded as just, just standing there, taking it all in. He's not perturbed by the whole event. I think if I was standing there and this demonic voice was coming out, I think I'd be like shaking. He keeps his cool. It's a chaotic situation. And he watches them, and they respond knowing what he's going to do. He's going to exercise them out of these men and heal and make these men whole again. And they beg him to cast them into a herd of pigs. Now, the demons wanted a host, and in this need, they also still have to ask for permission. It's a remarkable recognition of the authority of Jesus' word. The wind and the waves obeyed the word, and so do the demons. 
with one word, go, or literally move. <laughs> Jesus brings wholeness of heart to this, these worn and weary individuals. One word, he removes the chaos in their souls. You know, the sword of the Lord is designed to slay dragons. It speaks into the unseen realm and destroys dragons. There's a third reality that we need to see here, and it also comes to speak to our day, is the reality of demonic psychosis. There's another demon that's lurking here in the background, which causes the city people to also beg Jesus too. There is a demonic demon called mammon. There is a desire for wealth and the worship of wealth at the cost of people. Ask what a city or nation values more than persons, economics more than human beings, their pigs more than the rehabilitation of their townsmen, and you will identify the demon of mammon. Since the overthrow of Roe v. Wade, the demons have been begging Christians to leave the public square. In every nation, in every community, there are people who love money and economic prosperity more than people. What causes us to abuse others rather than to restore? The response is nothing short of the demonic. This is very true when you think through our historic battle as a nation with slavery, and it's very much true even today of our modern slavery of children and trafficking of migrants and women and mass migration, people working for substandard wages because they're undocumented. It's very similar to the kind of slavery that is in a force right now, even in China, in which people are herded into camps because of their ethnicity. Corruption at the highest levels of our government is a kind of direct worship of mammon. The demonic world is alive and well in America today. In spite of the spiritual good that churches do in our own society, we are still very much in the realm of Babylon and deserve to be destroyed. Just as Babylon in the book of Revelation will face God's wrath when He comes, we should not expect our place to be any different. We ought to rejoice, though, on the overthrow of wicked laws. We ought to rejoice. But we have a legion of demons that need to go over the cliff and into the sea. Change must first begin in the house of God. We have to be true disciples who are willing to respond to the Word of God ourselves if we ever think that we will be salt and light in this world. 
Life transformation begins through the born-again experience of the Holy Spirit. And it continues as faith unites with obedience to Jesus. You know, we can look at these miracles and we can say, look at how fast that disorder turned to order. And we can discount the day of small things, little changes that amount to large change. Many people will see a remarkable change in another person who has turned from sin and trusted the Savior and say, well, I'm glad that worked for you. Why do people do that? Why wouldn't it work for them? Jesus, His Word, His power has not changed. 2,000 years, there have been many people who have been radically changed by the truth of Jesus' word. We're sitting in this room because people were changed centuries ago and communicated about the change that occurred in their hearts to others who told others. And now we're receiving it for ourselves. You know, the beauty of pastoring in one location for a long period of time is that you get to know people and you get to see the changes that are occurring in their lives. In the day-to-day, -day, what we would call mundane, like, okay, so they come to church every week and or we see them maybe once in a while here and there. But some of the fruit comes up after a few years and you look back and you realize, wow, look where they have come. They used to be such a train wreck. Well, look over there. Look at how well ordered they are now, and they're coming to. They're glorifying God over here now in ways they. And I know some of your stories. I know some of your personal stories of how when you came to faith and you look back now and you see the radical change that has occurred in your life. That didn't come because you were smart or you were wise. It came because of the Holy Spirit, and response and obedience to the Word. To become skillful with the Word of God, we must respond to the Word of God and follow Him. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. They that have ears to hear let them hear. Let's pray.